Welcome to the Purdue Commercial Agcast, the Purdue University Center for Commercial Agriculture's podcast featuring farm management news and information. I'm your host, Jim Mintert, director of the Purdue Center for Commercial Agriculture. And joining me today is Michael Langemeyer, who's professor of ag economics here at Purdue. We're going to review the latest information from the USDA's WASDE report, the World Ag Supply Demand Estimates, that was released earlier this week. And nor- normally we would do this in a webinar format with our colleague uh, Nathan Thompson. Uh, but we're at the Commodity Classic in New Orleans this week, so we're going to record uh, while we're in New Orleans, and uh, we're going to use some of the information that Nathan Thompson was able to provide us as well. So, uh, Michael, uh, an interesting report this week. Of course, um, nobody really knows what's going to happen, I guess. I guess we have to say that at the outset. There's just a tremendous amount of uncertainty. USDA came out, came out and said there is a tremendous amount of uncertainty. They made some revisions to their estimates. But in a way, kind of told us that uh, they expect to see further revisions as this kind of situation in, in Ukraine um, unfolds and we get a little a more clear picture about what's going to take place, right? Certainly a difficult environment to try to estimate exports, particularly coming from Ukraine and, and Russia, and but also ending stocks. Uh, so just more uncertainty than usual around exports and, partic- and ending stocks. Yeah, I think the bottom line is the ending stocks are, are tighter. Uh, World trade is going to be smaller than expected previously. Uh, losses in uh, of exports from Ukraine, particularly in corn and wheat, uh, and also Russia on the wheat side, uh, not so much on corn, but on the wheat side, um, there's going to be a pullback there. And the question is, you know, what happens to those exports or what would have been those exports from those countries? How much of that is going to transfer over to the U.S.? Uh, and in some cases, maybe some other suppliers, and particularly with respect to corn, uh, to perhaps South America. So, um, you know, as you look at it, the ending stocks estimates here in the U.S. are, are tighter uh, than they were coming in. Um, USDA, I think, now has corn ending stocks in the U.S. at less than 10% carryover into the new crop year. Uh, they were above 10%. Now we're, I think, about 9.6%. Um Truthfully, that's probably too high. Uh, you know, I think they're probably underestimating what the impact on U.S. corn exports. Uh, we're probably going to see a little more exports than what they've suggested in the report. So looking ahead, the next couple of reports, I think those ending stocks as a percentage of usage are going to continue to get tighter. What do you think, Michael? I wonder if the market's already incorporating tighter stocks because you look at corn, uh, December corn, and it's been running right, right around 650. Uh, so certainly stronger than it was a, a week ago or two weeks ago. Yeah. So, and of course, still a lot of uncertainty with respect to the South American numbers. Um, USDA was pretty modest with respect to the revisions they made to the South American numbers. It does tighten things up some more. But again, um, you know, the weather impact down there, it's difficult to ascertain. You know, I think, you know, Michael, one of the things that I think about is how difficult it was to forecast yield here in the U.S., given some of the dry conditions we had, particularly in the upper Midwest, and how well things turned out there. And I think that's one of the challenges USDA faces right now with respect to forecasting uh, what's taking place in, in South America. Having said that, Conab did pull back their soybean number significantly for Brazil. Um, I think a number of the private sources still think it's it's hasn't been pulled back enough. USDA is not as low as what Conab is. So we've got this tremendous range of estimates there. But I think as, as you go forward, you know, we're looking at a tighter stock situation than we thought we were going to look at, for example, going back to January, thinking about the beginning of the year. I think over the next month or two, the USDA values are going to reflect even further tightening. 
And what this really means is, as we go through the growing season for the 2022 crop, there's going to be a tremendous amount of pressure on U.S. production with respect to both acreage and yield. And I, I, people haven't talked too much about the yield factor, but everybody's walking into this right now assuming we're going to hit trendline yields. That's not a lock, right? Yeah, you look at the drought monitor, and, and there's dry conditions all the way through Iowa and in northern Illinois, um, and you know, and, and north of there, and so and so the, the, the drought drought really has moved a little bit east uh, compared to what it was just just a, a few months ago, and that's that's very concerning. Yeah, and of course, you exacerbated with the impacts on the wheat side. So. Uh, the, the whole grain outlook, and our listeners already know this just from looking at the prices, right? But the whole grain outlook has changed dramatically in a short span of time. But it does kind of point out some of the things we talked about earlier, which is from a world supply demand st- standpoint, things were already tightening. And now what's taken place with the war and shutting off Black Sea exports effectively um, has just really tightened it further. It's exacerbated by some weather difficulties in South America. Um, I, I do need to point out the weather conditions in South America have improved here recently. Um, things are not looking quite as stressed as they were just a few weeks ago, but the yield outlook down there is still extremely uncertain at this point. Um, and again, I come back to the fact that you know we need pretty um, uh, trend-lined pr- production levels on a yield basis here in the U.S., uh, just to kind of keep our heads above water, right? Yes, definitely. And and one of the things I think people need to think about, we've been talking about, we've been talking about uh, dropping uh, dropping the stocks to use, and I think there is many reasons why it could become tighter. But there's a lot of there's so much uncertainty here that it could go the other direction. And the reason I mentioned that is I think we always have to keep in mind. And I think that's where you're heading, Jim, with the next slide. We always have to keep in mind: is there marketing opportunities in this environment uh, for the 22 crop? And for the remaining of the 21 yes. crop, right? So, I mean, many of our listeners certainly have, have at least a portion of that 21 crop probably still in storage. Um, you know, and, and of course, what's taken place here lately has been, um, all, I would say, unprecedented with respect to some of the volatility we've seen in basis. Um, you know, Nathan Thompson and I have been, have been looking at this uh, pretty carefully here these last few days and a couple of weeks, really. And, you know, if you look at the crop basis tool, um, you know, we certainly saw those basis levels uh, at the interior markets weaken. Um, the, the interesting thing was, as you looked at what happened as the war unfolded in Ukraine, we initially, at terminals that were in position to fill exports that were being uh, switched or transitioned from a Black Sea origin to U.S. origin, uh, basis at many of those river terminals um, virtually exploded overnight as there was a mad scramble to try and fill barges, uh, ultimately to load uh, export vessels here in, in, in the New Orleans area predominantly. And then as those barges got filled, those basis levels backed off. Basis was really truthfully, from my perspective, doing its job, right? It was, it was really directing very localized supplies uh, into those markets where it was in, in high demand relative to what was going on in the futures market. The frustrating thing, I think, for a lot of farmers was the fact that if you weren't in a position to sell into one of those export-oriented river terminals, basis was weakening. And that was in response to the volatility, right, into the marketplace. So... 
grain merchants, uh, elevators around the country, if they weren't necessarily in a position to benefit from uh, that short-run boost in demand in those export channels, they were looking at the volatility and recognizing that they didn't really want to accumulate inventories at these strong basis levels. And so you actually saw basis levels at, at a number of markets uh, weaken while they were strengthening at those export-oriented locations. And, and, you know, that was really evident here in Indiana. Um, I know Nathan was taking a look at uh, Beach Grove, which is just uh, south of Indianapolis. Um, at the same time that we were seeing the export uh, markets like Evansville and St. Louis have really, really strong basis levels. I think in St. Louis, we had some days when the basis was positive 50. Uh, in Evansville, we got up to about positive 30. Uh, and at the same time, uh, Beach Grove was, was dropping off and going down to about, what, minus 15. So you have this big I would say abnormally widespread in basis between some of the river terminals and some of the inland terminals. And, you know, as you look at it now, um, many of those export-oriented river terminals have backed off. Uh, and it's, I would not rule out seeing those uh, basis levels rebound going forward as we see more gyrations with respect to people uh, switching the origin of some of those exports, right? So I don't think all the exports that were originally planned to come from the Black Sea have been switched over to other destinations at this or other origination points at this stage. And so we're probably going to continue to see some gyrations in basis, some unusual gyrations in basis because of that differential uh, change in, in demand going forward. Um, what's your take, Michael? Yeah, I think you're definitely definitely right. I mean, when you got you know, I'm an environment like this, you have to you just have to watch the markets very closely. Yeah, I think that's a good point because if you weren't paying really close attention, um, you know, I, we usually talk about monitoring basis once a week. We got into an environment there where you needed to monitor it not only every day, but truthfully, it was gyrating during the course of the day. Um, I was watching a few markets pretty closely, and there were some markets that. Uh, changed their basis by 20 cents a bushel between uh, roughly 8 o'clock in the morning and maybe 3 o'clock in the afternoon uh, with an incremental change in the middle. So <clears throat> it was a very volatile time frame, and, and I think it's going to continue to be pretty volatile going forward. I think uh, in the marketplace, a lot of things, a lot of people like to refer to this as headline risk uh, with the markets responding to the latest headline with respect to what's going on in, uh, in Eastern Europe. Um, so as you look at opportunities, uh, Nathan took a look at this for us, looking at some um, uh, opportunities, what the cash bids are, um, it, maybe factoring in storage costs and thinking about where you're at. Um, he's got a lot of sevens out there, right? Those are all, all, all above $7. And for remaining old crop, um, what's your take, Michael? When it gets to seven dollars, and you know, you got to remember back to what the break even was for the twenty-one crop. For a lot of folks, it was four dollars or close to four dollars. You've got to—I think—you've got to really seriously consider taking advantage of these seven-dollar corn. So that was anticipated from you, Michael. Then I'm gonna—I'm gonna point out that on a seasonal basis, it would be a little early. It would not be surprising to see some additional. Um, uh, seasonal strength in these markets in April and May. Yeah. So, and I guess you know, given the volatility, uh, as I mentioned earlier, headline risk. Uh, 
you know, it depends on where you're at here. But if you have a little bit left, um, uh, the portion of your crop that you can afford to really speculate on, you might think about waiting and taking advantage of that seasonal, that normal seasonal trend, which would typically suggest a top uh, uh, in May or perhaps uh, perhaps the beginning of June for corn. And um, obviously, that's usually tied to maybe some difficulty with respect to getting the crop in. This year, um, that could be tied to perhaps wet weather in the south. Uh, you know, I actually drove to New Orleans, Michael. It's very wet. I didn't see anybody that had done anything. Now, we didn't, you know, we didn't cover all the major corn country. But uh, moving south from Indiana, it was very wet. Uh, there just wasn't any activity out there. And normally this time of year, there would have been, right? Yeah. And just the usual caution here, and, and perhaps you were, you were coming to this, Jim, is be pretty careful storing your storing crop past May. Uh, I, in this environment we're in, you could see some huge variability once you get past May. Yeah, it's always risky. I think we've pointed that out in previous webinars um, and, and podcasts. Always risky to store uh, past roughly the beginning of June because of the difficulty in forecasting basis, and that's going to be exacerbated this year. So, you know, if you if you choose to do that, recognize that you're taking on some serious risk. Um, if it's a small portion of your crop, I mean, that might be a very reasonable thing to do. Um, so keep that in mind. As you think about looking at new crop, um, let's talk about that a little bit. Uh, the new crop numbers have changed a lot. So Nathan went back and looked. Uh, when we did our January webinar, if... These futures were at 5.59 with a negative 20 cent basis in central Indiana. That put uh, bids at 5.39 approximately. When we did our February webinar just a month ago, uh, these futures were at 5.89, putting that minus 20 uh, basis on there. 5.69 uh, implied bid for the fall. Uh, this was actually not this morning's prices, but I think maybe yesterday morning's prices. 6.42 on these futures. Minus 20 basis puts you at 622. So, not quite, but almost getting close to a dollar move relative to where we were back in January. And and the good news is 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 costs haven't increased all that much since January. Uh, fertilizer, in, in some cases, is as as is a little higher now than it was in January. But really, the break-even price for average productivity ground has been right around 550. It's about 555 now, so it's increased a little bit. So that's certainly the good news. And so what that means is there's some really good opportunities to to lock in a profit uh, for this fall. Yeah, and so I think you want to be a little bit careful with that. Um, and they're, <clears throat> we're probably looking at an ongoing pretty tight situation. But historically, marketing some of that in the spring, right? You know, rec risk management is all about the fact that we can't forecast the future very accurately. And what's happened the last couple of months is, you know, maybe driven that home in spades. But um, thinking about it from a risk management standpoint, if you don't want to lock in that 620, 625 range, um, be paying close attention, right? Thinking about, you know, I know a lot of our listeners probably haven't started making sales yet for the 2022 crop, uh, or if they have, they've maybe made just a very small sale. Uh, historically, um, on average, pricing some of that crop in the spring, uh, either at or before planting season, um, has been a pretty good move. And, and again, thinking of that seasonal strength, normally that would be, uh, well, maybe about the middle of planting season, roughly uh, sometime in the month of May, maybe around the 1st of June, right? So, 
and even though I'm very optimistic when it comes to uh, comes to corn and soybeans this year, very bullish uh, com- uh, for Michael, there is a 25% chance that corn could be below 525. If you look at the iFarm price distribution tool, and so just remember, you know, even though the direction has been upward, uh, you know, there is a, there is a chance that we could see lower corn. That's why I say maybe thinking about uh, taking advantage of some of these prices now. Like you say, not really high percentages perhaps, but really thinking about maybe starting, uh, you know, starting to take uh, to, uh, to take advantage of some of these higher prices. And Michael, maybe this is a good point to talk about uh, the crop insurance decision because there's still an opportunity to revise crop insurance decisions. And given, um, you know, what the crop insurance prices were, uh, what's your take there? Would you recommend as a, a little bit of a price risk management for some folks to perhaps think about, um, at least consider, raising their crop insurance uh, policy? Uh, moving, for example, from in Indiana, we've got some folks that are probably at 75% coverage. Should they be thinking about 80? And the folks that are at 80, should they be thinking about 85? I think definitely in southern Indiana and probably southern Illinois, too. I, I think looking, you know, they, 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 they typically choose 75 or 80 percent. Maybe maybe look at increasing that 5 percent. Uh, in some counties, it's probably going to be prohibitive, uh, prohibitively expensive. But take a look at that. Yeah, and we came up, um, we did a podcast here recently on the crop insurance decision. We came up with kind of a thumb rule there, which is look at the additional coverage you're acquiring by bumping up that 5%, and then look at the additional premium, um, divide that into the coverage level, the, the change in the premium into the coverage level change, and look at the ratio, right? And then ask yourself, um, you know, for example, we looked at some examples that day when we were doing that podcast, Michael, where you know, the ratio was two, right? Which implied that um, for that to be a a good move for you from a risk management standpoint, you probably have to incur a loss every other year, right? Um, So kind of look at that ratio. Um, I've looked at some counties in Indiana where making that move to from 80, for example, to 85 would probably be a good idea. Yeah, Yeah, central and and, and northern Indiana, if you weren't at 85 percent, this is probably a year to think about going to 85 percent. Yeah, that's sort of my take. Uh, And and at least look at it. And I know, uh, know a lot of you have probably already made your decision, but if you haven't, you know, you've got a few days left to finalize it, so you might want to revisit that a little bit and look at that a little more carefully. Um, USDA on the soybean side, they did tighten the ending stocks a little bit. Uh, to me, it's all about the trend here, Michael. Uh, you know, you go back to last summer, there was a period in time we thought ending stocks might be down around 4% or less coming out of this 21 crop. Um, then it went up. We were up uh, over, I think, roughly about 8 or a little over 8% usage uh, for a little while. Now we're back down to about 6.5% and a little bit like corn. I think it's probably going to get tighter than that. Um, I don't know that we're going to get all the way back to that 4% we were talking about last summer, um, but it's it's tightening up and it really hinges pretty heavily, obviously, on the South American crop. On this one, it's really not about Ukraine so much, although there is an issue there with respect to oil seeds. Um, on the sunflower side predominantly. But the bigger issue is probably what's taking place in South America and how much you're cutting back the South American crop estimates. USDA was pretty conservative with their estimate relative to, um, truthfully, I think all the private estimates. I haven't seen a single private estimate that wasn't smaller than USDA's estimate. A lot of uncertainty, though. And again, I, I, I point out the challenge in terms of forecasting yield and how difficult it was with really good information sources here in the U.S. 
to forecast yields, especially in the upper Midwest, right? To some extent, even in Indiana, right? I think another factor that's going on, something that's definitely going on here is is we've seen some strength in the soybean prices in my mind because of the strength in the wheat and corn prices. Let's face it, soybean has to compete for acres. And, and to do that, it's going to you know, have to uh, have a fairly strong price. Yeah, the acreage debate, you know, we're in the middle of that, right? And uh, I guess this is probably going to be the most the most interesting prospective plantings report that comes out here at the end of March in several decades. Yeah, in my understanding, it's not just corn, soybean, and wheat. There's all these other crops that are also competing for acres that look like they have fairly strong margins. Uh, so this is going to be this is going to be interesting to say the least. So again, uh, looking at the storage opportunities and what should you do with the remaining soybeans? Um, you know, the, the supply situation on both corn and soybeans on a worldwide basis looks very tight to me. Um, and in both cases, that means there's probably some upside potential. The soybean market has flirted with the $17 level a couple of times, right? Well, several times now. Uh, and then every time it, it does that, it kind of pulls back. Um, as you look at, uh, you know, the bids are pretty flat. The futures market is not providing any incentive to store. I should, we should point that out, right? There's really no carry in the futures market. So it's, it's really, if you're hanging on uh, with respect to storage of both crops, it's really about expecting futures prices to increase, right? Um, and hanging on to soybeans is not cheap, right? Uh, Nathan did a nice job here of estimating, you know, if you've got on-farm storage, um, assuming you're borrowing money at about a 6% APR. Um, I think his, you know, if you're looking at, at current cash prices and you choose to store out to June, um, that pushes your break even up over 1680 uh, with a cash price here in the, in the beginning of about 16, I think he had 1657 in there. So I guess one of the things that Nathan was trying to point out, and he always likes to point this out, and Nathan's a good economist, he likes to remind people that storage is not free all right there's also there's the storage there's operational cost of your own storage uh, but obviously it's the money invested that you've got that you could be using to pay down uh, uh, existing debt that makes storage kind of expensive so think about that a little bit um, having said that you know if we see some further cuts as I think the trade is many people in the trade think is likely um, we could see some additional strength in, in these soybean futures prices, right? So I think uh, your same same recommendation you had for corn, maybe hanging on to some, uh, to maybe expect a little strength in, in the strength in, in futures price in April and May here. But again, don't hold on too long, uh, and also just watch the markets very carefully. One of the one of the things I think producers also need to think about, and this is obvious, as you get closer to planning, are you going to have time to watch these markets as closely? And so I think that's another factor to think about when you're when you're selling both corn and soybeans this time of year. Yeah, the other thing that's really interesting about the soybean market relative to the corn market is uh, a little bit as we mentioned with corn, as the futures price volatility increased, one of the things that's happened is uh, the grain merchants have really kind of taken what I'd call protection, right? The basis is weakened. Um, and I think a lot of that just reflects the risk that's in the marketplace. So we're seeing softer basis levels in this case, across the board, right? Inland and river terminals, both. Um, Nathan was taking a look at some of the, the river basis levels in southern Indiana and southern Illinois. Um, and we did see some early strength there, but they backed off pretty quickly. And of course, this, the, the basis story in, in soybeans is different than in corn. 
in corn, uh, the swings, in, to some extent, have really been about switching the origination uh, of some of these exports that were originally planned to originate from the Black Sea area and now are happening to come at the moment predominantly from the U.S., in some cases, South America. So you're seeing that take place. On the soybean side, they're not really a producer over in, in Ukraine, so uh, it's a little different story. I really think it's about the risk levels. And... Uh, um, the weakening in basis has made those basis those bids uh, softer. Having said that, as we move through the course of the year, and this is the part that gets risky because, as you pointed out, when you get into the tail end of the spring and certainly into summer, our ability to forecast basis is is very minimal, right? Very weak. And so that creates some real challenges, but we could see some interesting developments on the basis side this summer. Uh, but at the moment, uh, basis, you know, if you look at it, I, I, I've been talking about it being weak. It depends on what, which market you're looking at. If you're looking at, for example, central Indiana, uh, all of a sudden basis is now weaker than the, the most recent uh, uh, two-year average, which is normally what we use to forecast soybean basis. Um, if you look at the river terminals, um, basically, it's dropped back to the two-year average, um, and that suggests that the, the export uh, side has really been stronger. You know, one thing we didn't talk about, Michael, though, is, and I think probably some listeners have some questions about this, is what's taking place with respect to uh, domestic usage, right? Um, crush margins for soybeans remain positive. Um, if you look on the corn, ethanol margins are hanging in there pretty well, Um which is kind of amazing given corn prices, right? But if you look at what's taking place with respect to fuel prices, that explains it. Uh, so domestic usage probably continues to be pretty strong. Uh, that really puts a lot of emphasis on what's going to take place on the, on the, on the export side. So Nathan took a look at the, the prices, uh, looking at the fall. And again, comparing back to January and February, the, you know, these are amazing changes. Uh, in January, uh, with a normal basis of in central Indiana of negative 30, we were looking at 1270 for harvest delivery. Feb, we were looking at 1428, and now uh, here in March, about, in round numbers, about 14 and a half. What, what's truly amazing to me about this, even with January at that 1270, we were looking at some profit. And so all we've done is really strengthen our profit perspective. That's why I think, that's why just like corn, I think it, I think uh, maybe uh, thinking about marketing some of your soybeans at these very, very strong prices in the fall uh, should, be, should be considered, should be a consideration. Again, we've got to come back to our definition of risk management. Yeah. We can't forecast the yeah, future yeah. very accurately. And so that means you've got to look at your own situation spread out the sales, uh, and maybe kind of scale in on some of this, right? So just talking, we, we, we've talked a little bit about break-evens during this presentation. So just, just repeating some of those numbers uh, for, for listeners. If you're looking at average productivity soil in Indiana, you're looking at a break-even uh, 555. Uh, if you're looking at high productivity, you're looking at something close to 510. Again, the price we were talking about earlier was about 625, and so obviously some pretty strong uh, possibilities of economic profit right now. Same with soybeans. Uh, we're looking at uh, soybean break-evens for average productivity about 1240 and about 1150 for high. Uh, let me repeat that, 1150 for high. Compare that to your 1450 uh, that we were talking about earlier, uh, you know, for fall delivery and so and so some uh, some pretty uh, strong profit potential for both corn and soybeans. Uh, one of the things that's interesting, and I'll just just mention this in passing. We talked about it last time. Is traditionally the soybean to corn ratio has been about 2.5. It's 
dropped to about 2.3. It's, it's, hover, it's hovering <laughs> uh, around that 2.3. And so that might suggest, well, you know, maybe corn's, maybe corn's going to be more profitable. You got to remember the cost this year. Uh, you know, the, 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 the relative costs increased uh, rather dramatically for corn compared to soybeans. And so you put that all together, they're just they're similar profitability. And that's a big change from what we've been talking about the last couple of webinars. We were looking at soybeans being considerably more profitable. The strength in corn has, has, has really made corn much more competitive. And it's been interesting to watch that unfold in the corn futures market, right? Because when we lost access to the Ukraine uh, corn exports, the market recognized that. And all of a sudden, we saw some days when corn was going up and soybeans either did nothing or actually went down. Um, to really equilibrate that, right? So um, it's 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 been the wildest year, I'd say, in decades in terms of trying to anticipate what's. And I think now we were talking about on high productivity soil. Perhaps we'd see some see some second year soybeans. I don't think that's going to happen uh, if this if this uh, situation continues uh, into planting. I, I don't think that's going to happen. I think the areas that have had continuous corn in the past are probably going to see quite a bit of continuous corn, such as parts of Iowa. Yeah, the question, I guess, is whether or not anybody's making changes yes. this late in the game, right? And oh, and if things could change again, look how fat, look how much they've changed here since January. Yeah. Back and forth, back and forth. Yeah. Um, all right, I think uh, Michael. One maybe thing to think about is you've been talking a little bit about cash rent, and it's early to start forecasting for 2023. Um, but it looks like we're that picture's changed, right? Yeah, every time I look at net farm income per acre for the case farm, uh, 2022 uh, becomes closer to what 2021 looks like than the average. The average net return, uh, net net farm income per acre for that case farm is $125. The 2022 right now is $275, and that compares to 320 uh, for 21. And so that 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 just keeps strengthening uh, the that the possibilities for for 22 uh and, and so what that tells me is we're going to see a lot more upward pressure on cash rents than, than i thought even two months ago yeah the picture's just changed and uh so when you have two three years in a row we're gonna this would be the third year in a row where where net net return to land is higher than cash rent that suggests more than five percent increase in cash rent perhaps in ten percent and I think, you know, of course, we do the ag economy barometer. And one of the things about the ag economy barometer has been the weakness in sentiment that we've picked up. And I think so much of that's tied to this volatility and uncertainty with respect to input cost. I think here in ag agriculture, we're much more acclimated to uh, volatility in output prices. And normally, input prices are relatively stable. That absolutely has not been the case. The cash rent is just one, one component of that, but it's a huge component. Uh, but we've seen so much volatility and, and uh, difficulty in anticipating our production costs. Now, just remember, uh, land values and cash rent uh, are, do not, necessi not necessarily follow the same factors. Cash rent is much more based on, on what's going on in the farm, that return to land. And so that's what's driving cash rent. Therefore, uh, a 10% increase in cash rent is large. We had three of those from 2007 to 2013, but they were like 10 11%. Whereas land values, we know this last year, they can go up 20% or more uh, in one year because land values is, is impacted by a much wider variety of factors, such as inflation, interest rates, uh, and some of these kinds of things. So just keep that in mind. Just because the land market uh, is, has really increased does not necessarily mean uh, cash rent's going to increase. So that's why we always talk about net return to land for cash rent, because that really drives it. Good point. 
Well, that kind of wraps up our discussion for today, Michael. Um, you can find more information and uh, um, sign up for our emails, et cetera, at purdue.edu slash commercial ag. So with that, I want to encourage you to share the podcast with your friends and colleagues. On behalf of Michael Langemeyer uh, and the Purdue University Center for Commercial Agriculture, I'm Jim Mintert. Thanks for listening. <music>